beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. And good afternoon. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm your host, Michael Benner. And uh, we have another wonderful show for you today. I'm so glad you're able to tune in and spend some time with us. This program, as the introduction just said, is a show about consciousness. But what could be more all-encompassing than the idea of awareness, to notice what you notice? And increasingly, we're discovering that consciousness really is fundamental. Hope you had a chance to listen to last week's program with Dr. Quantum, Fred Allen Wolf, a quantum physicist who says what the mystics have been saying from the beginning of time. Yep, everything that appears to be solid and separate actually springs from our awareness of it. We participate in its creation in every moment. Now, it's a little hard to get your head around, but... That's why we have radio programs like this, to explore it and bring in experts, people in the field, uh, who can help us understand what it means and how to apply it practically in our lives, how to be more mindful and more awake and, and, and more aware. And that makes life more wonderful, richer, and, and really joyous and thrilling. Well, we have just such a guest today. She's been with us in the past a couple of times. She is the author of a couple of books, co-author of Meeting the Shadow and also Romancing the Shadow. And her new book is called The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. And that shadow, as you might imagine, is a reference to the Jungian concept of light and shadow, the yin and the yang in each and every one of us. So today we're going to explore the shadow, especially in the context of aging and uh, making that a spiritual practice and looking at retirement and mortality and and all of these issues, again, that uh, if we're willing to wake up and confront them, to be aware and alert, to be curious, and honest and, and, and genuine with ourselves can be the richest time of, of all in our lives. I mean, for me, the older I get, the more I love life. I really do. And uh, it has its challenges, aging. It certainly does. But we're going to explore all of that today with my guest, Dr. Connie Zweig. And Connie, good afternoon. and Welcome to the Mystery School on KPFK. Hi, Michael. So glad to be here. Well, it's wonderful to see you again and to have you back on the air. What prompted you to write this third book about aging? Well, it's actually my fourth book about the shadow. So there was Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, Ah. which is all about darkness on the path. And The Inner Work of Age doesn't have shadow in the title, but it's about meeting the shadows of age. 
So this is a series that has evolved along with me and my own development. And what happened for me was that as I entered my late 60s, I was very surprised to begin to feel disoriented and kind of um, thrown off course by the, some of the hits of aging that were coming my way. And I realized, you know, my sort of natural inclination after 40 years of doing shadow work and 50 years of practicing meditation is to listen to the voices inside of me and attune to my own guidance. And as I began to do that, I heard a lot of contradictions inside. I should slow down. I have more to give. I want to meditate more. I want to do service and volunteer. Um, I want to be with the grandkids, but I really want to write another book. And so I felt a kind of internal contradiction that was disorienting to me. And this was at a time when I was beginning to think about retiring from my clinical practice and from paid work, but not retiring from life. I just didn't know what was next. So as an intuitive thinker, I think you know what that is. I started to do research. I started to read everything I could find about conscious aging. And what I realized was there was no depth psychology. There was no material out there for people to orient to the unconscious or the shadow in the aging journey. And the other thing I saw was that all of the books on meditation and aging came out of one tradition. So there were Christian aging meditation books and Buddhist aging meditation books and so on. But that's not my way. My way is eclectic, non-denominational, more mystical orientation. So I thought, uh-oh, I hadn't been planning to write a book, but maybe there's an, another contribution for me to make. And that's what happened. When we talk about the shadow especially in the context of aging, I think it's easy to be confused because if you look at your mortality and the inevitable end of life, we could think of that as an approaching shadow of some sort. But that's very different from the Jungian concept of the shadow. So why don't you tell us, first of all, what shadow means in the Jungian sense? Okay. So Carl Jung coined the term personal shadow to refer to the personal unconscious, that part of our mind that contains what we have not expressed and what we have repressed. So it's natural that we can't express everything in the course of our lives. And so certain things get buried in the shadow. We tend to think of it in popular vernacular as negative. Anger, jealousy, um, anxiety, envy, uh, rage, depression. But in a bigger picture, the shadow can contain anything. And it, in fact, contains a lot of positive traits that we have buried and not lived out. So if we grow up in a family that only values learning and academic performance, but we're artistically gifted or athletically gifted, those 
traits and aptitudes might get buried and go unexpressed. Um, if we uh, grow up in a family that uh, is afraid of sadness and grief um, and wants to be happy, happy all the time, then our sadness goes into the shadow, meaning that we unconsciously have fear or shame around feeling that feeling and we don't express it. So as we age, one of the things that happens is a lot of the thoughts and beliefs, feelings and values, aptitudes and talents that we never expressed in our lifetime have an opportunity to be reclaimed. We have a chance to actually reclaim them through exploring our shadows and expressing them later in life. So, for example, my literary agent retired. She was a businesswoman all her life, and now she paints full-time. And she said to me, I never knew I was an artist. So the shadow is that part of us, I like to say it's like a dark room that contains all the hidden, undeveloped images inside of us and fantasies and dreams. And shadow work is like the process of development of those images. We bring them out of the darkness, out of the closet, and we begin to look at them. And we have a method to work with them. And then we can begin to live out some of that material or express something to someone that was never expressed. So we're taught in our culture that it's good to be fast, quick. It's good to be responsive. It's good to be productive and successful. It's good to be um, all of the all of the things, the traits that we develop at midlife, through actually through our twenties, thirties, forties, sometimes fifties. All the traits we need, we need for careers. But what happens as we age? We start to slow. We start to um, find diminishments. Our attention moves away from our careers. All these things happen that trigger qualities that the culture views as negative because it values midlife traits. I mean, especially heroic productivity. So how do we move from that heroic midlife stage of life into really taking advantage of some of these changes that we go through? And we, if we can face them as shadows, because meaning that they're unconscious, and bring them into conscious awareness, then we can begin to work with them and actually make different choices. The mind is such an amazing thing, and I often run into people that presume when they hear terms like conscious and unconscious or uh, subconscious mind that uh, we're talking about two different minds or more, and yet we're really talking about mind, a small amount of which is aware. Yes. And uh, even when we sleep, there's some level of awareness or consciousness that we might say, oh, he's asleep, he's unconscious. So we struggle even with the words, but to turn and look consciously at what's unconscious, what seems to be inaccessible or difficult to access, boy, it is a hodgepodge. There is, as you pointed out, the ego nature which is so survival-oriented and so negative 
the internal loathing, the self-criticism, the, the fears of inadequacy, the petitioning others for acceptance and love. And yet that same unconscious appears to be the pathway to the soul, to our spiritual essence. The fact that we care, that we love, and the implications of why we care so much, why we, for example, long for justice and insist that things be fair in life and feel that connection to, to other people. And so to call all of that the shadow seems to me like we're saying, well, come on into the shadow. It really needs a lot of exploring. And there may be some places that are darker than others, and there may even be some hidden dangers or hazards in here. But boy, there's so much more in the shadow that as we enlighten it, <laughs> as, we, as we explore it, will enrich your life in wonderful ways. So I'm not saying that everything is in the shadow. But in the context of age, what, I've, what I'm looking at in my new book is the inner work that we need to do to uncover 12 obstacles, internal, I call them shadow characters, inner unconscious inner obstacles or shadow characters that are blocking us from aging well, that are blocking us from becoming an elder. So we all become a senior when we have a Medicare birthday. But what does it mean to become an elder? From my point of view, it's, it requires a rite of passage. And that's the inner work that I'm offering in the new book. So if we organize these unconscious inner obstacles and we begin to learn how to look at them, then we're taking a step into this new stage of life. It's not this big amorphous, everything's in the shadow and we have to open it up. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can specify what we want to turn our attention toward as it relates to aging. Some of it, you mentioned um, mortality awareness. Some of it is about denial of death. And when we really look at that head on, what does that mean for how we live now? And I think that's one of the blessings that we can take from the terrible, terrible COVID epidemic is that so many people were forced to look at mortality who had never, ever been able to do that before. There are other inner obstacles like the, den the denial of aging itself. So an, a friend of mine who's 89 said to me the other day, I don't want to be with those old people. I'm not like them. So he's in denial of his age. Now he's in good shape, he's healthy, and he's busy and all that. But he's in denial of his biological age and all that that means for him. So I call that shadow the inner ageist. And I wrote a whole chapter about ageism in society and how we internalize ageism as this shadow character in, inside of us. And the self-loathing that that leads to, the lack of self-acceptance of my wrinkles, the lack of self-acceptance or of my limitations now or of my husband's limitations, rather than the capacity to actually open up to what is 
And every spiritual tradition teaches that, being present to what is. But if we're in denial, then we're not practicing that. So there are these series of inner obstacles which lead to the developmental tasks to become an elder. Another one is um, completing emotional unfinished business. So if we are still identifying with a childhood wound and feeling like a victim and telling our story to ourselves over and over again, I was abused and, you know, I was traumatized and I hate that person, then, and that can be valid. The The pain can be valid. But what I'm saying is if we're still living in the past, in our 60s and 70s, 80s, and identifying with that inner child, that wounded child, then we can't make the transition to elder. So another task is really looking at how we can complete that emotional unfinished business or emotional repair. Find someone to work with and really be able to heal that and let that go. And part, you know, everyone I interviewed for the book told me that one of their greatest fears was that they would die with regret. So what does that mean? It means that we need to look at the first thing I was saying, maybe some things that we need to explore, create, or do that we'll regret if we don't do them, and maybe some things that we need to say to others to make amends, to give and receive forgiveness in order not to die with regret. So that's another task. I've heard uh, the Dalai Lama say, or purportedly say, that all of life is a preparation for death. I don't expect you to speak on his behalf, but what do you suppose he may be saying? Well, one of the big sections of the new book is completing unfinished spiritual business. I haven't seen this written about anywhere else, but I know that for myself and all the people I'm close to, this is a key task of late life. And what I mean by that is um, really examining our beliefs and values, really examining our images of the divine. Some of them have been lying in the shadow, dormant for decades, taken for granted. They're not relevant anymore. Like I had this client who was doing Buddhist practices, but when we really explored underneath, he was afraid of going to hell from his Catholic childhood. So really looking, really looking at what is in the shadow about our spiritual beliefs and images, and then finding a practice that really fits who we are now, a meditation practice. And, and so I've explored a lot of them in the book given that we have different needs now than we did when we may have started meditating earlier. So for me, in relation to what the Dalai Lama said, for me, because I've kind of allowed myself to really internalize mortality awareness now, um, I do about an hour of sitting practice every day. And I recognize with each exhalation that that could be my last breath. And that's, that kind of has become an automatic practice for me now. 
As I practice breathing, I'm practicing dying. I'm practicing letting go, letting go, letting go, and dying. And th this kind of happened naturally for me. And I don't know what my dying process will be like because none of us can know that. And I may have, you know, a romanticized version of it in my mind. But I would like to believe that that will help me in those final moments to really let go without a lot of grasping and suffering because that's become my practice. Boy, I have so many questions for you. Uh, we could do a series of shows on this topic. Uh, I've got to take a real quick break, Connie, and I'll be right back. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My guest is Dr. Connie Zweig, and we're talking about her new book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul. Won't be out for a few weeks yet, but I suspect there's pre-order available on Amazon. We'll talk more with Dr. Connie right after this. You're listening to KPFK. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973 or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars, trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. And we're back. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm Michael Benner, and my guest today is Dr. Connie Zweig. We've been talking about aging. We're talking about uh, preparing for death as a spiritual practice. We're, we've just begun to scratch the surface of topics that, gosh, it's, it's real easy to ignore and deny and pretend you're not concerned at all about such things. Um, Connie, in listening to you to this point, I think about the struggles that I've had throughout my life with not wanting to limit my identity to, oh, worker bee, you know, to what I can produce and consume, what I earn and spend, uh, whether I need to replace this furniture and throw that furniture away. And we all feel, we're, we're conditioned to feel as if we're trying to get somewhere, to attain something. Um, and then the destination is what? Retirement uh, or death. And it forces us, I think, again, speaking for myself, uh, to take another look at that identity. Who am I, in fact, if I'm not this guy that's been trying to get somewhere throughout my life and attain some, I don't know, level of, of performance or acceptance. What do you think about that? that? That must be pretty common, don't you suppose? So I think that, there, that actually what you're saying is really profound. I think what happens at midlife from a lot of people is the spiritual question, who am I, arises for the first time. Because many people have achieved those roles that they were dreaming about or the financial security. Even if they haven't, then they still ask the question in a different context. What happens again in later life is that question reemerges. 
And especially if we're letting go of all the busyness and all the doing. And the roles are falling away. The roles from the workplace, the roles in the family are changing. So who am I if I'm not a CEO, a mom, a teacher, a lawyer, a nurse? Who am I? And that's very much what my new book is about. It's kind of built around that question. We are not what we do. And I call this the doer. This is a shadow called the doer. If we're identified with the doer, or I had clients give it different names. I had a client who called it the driver. If you are identified with the doer or the driver as you enter late life, it's much harder to let go of the roles and the masks, the personas that you've carried for so long and really move into this transition that I call role to soul. Because, you know, Michael, you and I, from our perspective, we know as mystics and spiritual practitioners that we are not what we do. We are not even what we create. We are not what we achieve. We are spiritual beings. And that there is an essence to us that is unchanging and that is not about the doer. But these inner obstacles I was talking about block our identification with soul or whatever we call it. We could call it higher self or the divine within or spirit. I don't care what we call it. I used role to soul. I borrowed that phrase from Ramdas, who coined it. And his idea was that um, all of the spiritual traditions, the perennial teachings say that late life is a time for spiritual practice. It's a time to put down, you know, the weapons of the workplace, the weapons of war, the weapons of family, and all of the roles that we've taken on and really practice, I am not that. I am not the CEO. I am not the doer. I am not the shadow expert. And try to make this transition Put our attention on making this transition to a spiritual identity. And so my new book has a lot of practices that you can use to begin to do that. And they're ecumenical practices. You don't have to be Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim. They're ecumenical practices that you can use to contemplate that shift and continually move your attention to something greater than your roles. And that's how we become an elder. We get free. We become who we authentically are. And that's the sort of gift of aging that's hidden in plain sight. It's this freedom to identify with our spiritual nature. The assumption here that I'm hearing, um, again, that I'm hearing, is that this is solo work, but I bet there's some opportunity here to share this with our significant partner um, if we're fortunate enough as we age to still have an intimate partner. How do we bring up the subject? How do we communicate this or 
or do it hand in hand? You know, I'm doing a lot of presentations for therapists so that they can do it in conjunction with clients. Um, I haven't set up anything to do it with couples, but I think that's a wonderful question. So if you, if you're in a relationship with someone who, um, has a spiritual orientation, has been doing some kind of spiritual practice, if it's mindfulness or TM or contemplative prayer or whatever it is, um, and you do that practice together with your partner, you can have a conversation about framing this as a shift from role to soul, that there is a level of consciousness that we can shift from role to soul. And you can begin to relate to each other. I've had this experience with a number of people, with my husband, but also, Michael, with a friend uh, for whom I was a caregiver for two years while she had cancer. And I had this experience of the roles falling away, where she was no longer the patient and I was the caregiver. We were two souls on a journey. And there was a transparency between us where the masks fell off and we saw who we really are. Not only how we served each other, but who we are together. We actually had this vision of sitting in India by the Ganges together. And that can happen in intimate relationships where you recognize the, the intimate essence of the other person rather than what they do for you or how they talk to you or how they speak or how much money they earn or all the things that we tend to focus on in the outer world. But we actually take a moment and we breathe together and we see who we are and we look into each other's eyes, which is a profound practice, and we see each other deeply. And I want to say, because you'll understand this, that this is the beginning, you know, this is an early stage in higher levels of consciousness that we can age into awakening, that that's the real vision here that I'm offering, that we can age into higher levels of consciousness or stages of awareness, whatever our language is, with, if we find the right practices and the right community now in this stage of life. And Roll to Soul is the beginning. I find in my relationship with my wife that the quality of love, the way in which I love her, I won't speak for her, is changing remarkably. It's transforming from I love her because she's smart. I love her because she's interesting. I love her because she's beautiful, because she's fun to be with and has a great sense of humor. Uh, I love her because there's somebody to debrief me at the end of the day who cares and vice versa. To the way you love a child, you don't have a reason to love a, a baby. They're not performing. They're not doing anything. And yet you love them so dearly in such an unspeakable way in other words, for no reason. Yes. <laughs> There's no reasoning involved. Yes, yes. And so 
you know, even when I look at my wife, it's like you were just saying the role of cancer patient caregiver falls away. And you look at each other with these new eyes as if seeing for the first time the nature of this relationship and this dance and, and how beautiful and wondrous it really is. Yet it is so ineffable. How, how do we even describe it? How, how do we share it? I guess that's the, that's the challenge, right? Especially for you as an author. Well, that's so beautiful. I'm really touched by what you're saying. And I share that with my husband who loves me for no reason. And every once in a while, I'll kind of torture him and I'll say, why, why, why? And I love him for no reason because he's a being. He's a beautiful being. And I love a lot of his traits. And I'm triggered by some of his traits. But I love the being he <laughs> is, right? I love the soul he is. The triggering part I was going to step over, but yeah, we did. But it's included. Yeah. It's included, Michael. Yeah. It has to be included in the whole. Because as long as we're incarnated as humans, we have shadows. And it's going to be a part of who we are and who we love. We have shadows and we have mirrors. And to take ownership of what it is about the other person that triggers you. I think is a big challenge to each of us. Yes. Yes. And that's a whole other book. Okay. Well, I'm <laughs> <found> you. <laughs> People will often say there's no way that you can know about your death. Nobody knows for a fact that the lights don't just go off and you're dead and there's nothing. How could you possibly know other than through some belief system that there is life everlasting or a continuity of life. And um, in my experience, there is a way of knowing, or maybe better said, realizing this continuity through meditation, through a, 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 a practice of surrendering and yielding to the intuitive self that speaks in such a reassuring way, with such clarity about these things, and often not in words that we could discern and play back to someone else, but just in a, a feeling in the body of, of comfort, of contentment, of fulfillment even. And again, I'm not sure how to explain this or talk to other people about it. That's the challenge for me. Um, what are your feelings along those lines? Can we use meditation and contemplation to reassure ourselves that there really is no death? For me, our frameworks and therefore our realizations are structured in our level of consciousness. So we can't see outside of our level of consciousness or stage of awareness. So if we're um, living in religious dogma and we're identified with that dogma, that's who I am. You know, I'm a fundamentalist Christian and I believe this because, you know, 
my clergy teaches this and the Bible teaches this and this is how it is, then that's what we're going to, that determines what we know and what we realize and what we see around us. So we're all kind of locked into our frames. For me, I call it structured in consciousness. So as our frames enlarge, if we can stop identifying with dogma of any kind, Buddhist dogma, right? Hindu dogma, mystical dogma. If we can stop identifying with dogma, if we can begin to have direct experience of the unity that underlies all of life, of the interconnectedness of all living things, then we have a different sense of what it means to die. If we're locked into our separateness, if my conniness is the most important thing and my conniness is going to die, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to my ego. It's terrifying to my body. But if I recognize that my conniness is part of the flow of creation and destruction that's going on in every cell in my body, in every cell, in every living thing, it's going on all the time. And I am part of that. And I can recognize that, not just believe it with my mind, but actually recognize that in my body, in my heart, in my perception. If I can see it, then I won't take death so personally. And it's not based on a belief that, that Connie is eternal. It's not based on a belief that, that I will be reincarnated. It's not based on a structure of consciousness or a concept. It's not about concepts. It's about expanding our consciousness to experience that I am that which lives and breathes through everything. So how can I die? And whether I call that atoms or breath or soul or whatever I call it, I am that. And so as we practice taking that in, as we practice really embodying that, then something happens to the fear of death. It starts to change. And we start to see that it's not personal. It's already happening everywhere, always. It's always already happening, just like birth is. Well, of course, no one who's mentally healthy anyway really wants to die. I can't say I'm looking forward to it or anything silly like that. I love life. I love the material world, frankly, though, uh, you know, certainly full of pain and suffering is as well as uh, happiness and fun. But I guess I look at it as uh, some sort of adventure, sort of like road trip, you know, oh boy. Uh, since it's inevitable, let's look forward to it. And when I take that into my meditation, uh, I never get a sense that I'm fooling myself. It feels real, it feels good, it feels right. And if I even just go to what I know about physics and that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, only transformed. Uh, well, I'm okay with that. And Buddhist philosophy makes it clear that everything material is impermanent. 
And so it all makes sense, this idea that the only thing that really is eternal is love or awareness or, or consciousness and the values that that go with that, the, the uh, morality or ethics. I sometimes refer to it as the moral authority of the wisdom teachings. Yes. So uh, adventure, it's an e-ticket. What else are you going to do with that? You know, Michael, I had a very close friend die last month. And he was in his 80s, and he had a long time to prepare. He was a student of esotericism. His wife is a close friend of mine. And he modeled that for us, for all of us. He modeled curiosity about his death up until the last minute. He was not struggling and striving to stay alive. He was not depressed or, um, I mean, I think there were probably levels where he was suffering physically, but he modeled that curiosity and that openness. And he said to me, my mantra today is allowing. He practiced allowing the process to happen. And that was the greatest gift to all of us who knew him and loved him. A question I'm asked probably more than any other in my practice is how can I overcome my fear of anything, my fear of this, my fear of that? How do I conquer it? And uh, without pausing, I always open by saying, you don't, you let it go. And that doesn't seem to occur to us. We want, we want to defeat things and, and explode them and conquer them and cause them to no longer exist. The idea that we're carrying this stuff, that what we call stuck is really holding on, and we could just drop it as we become more and more conscious of it. Well, I would call that the ego's agenda. And we start learning at a very young age. You know, we really, we... We are really internalizing all those values and building our egos from a very young age. And as we enter late life, some people realize that no longer works. I, I teach in the book how to do a life review. And many people have told me when they've done that, that they see they were never really in charge. It's kind of mind-blowing. All these things they thought they controlled, and they never did. And so that allows us to kind of loosen the grip of the part of us that's still trying to control, still trying to have it my way, still trying to be master of the universe. And this master of the universe is a kind of shadow character in late life because we're, because we're not in charge. And if we think we are, if we fall into that identity, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to suffer. So I think my friend's mantra of allowing is a nice way to practice a counter to that um, powering through and overcoming and mastering and, you know, outdoing and all that stuff that we learned at younger ages. Time, time has flown by and, uh, Again, uh, this is so fascinating. I can't wait for your book to come out. It's going to be a few weeks, but 
if people go on Amazon, is that the best way to pre-order your new book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting? What's the full title? Shifting from Role to Soul, The Inner Work of Age by Dr. Connie Zweig. What do you suggest they do to it's available for pre-order on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, also at independent bookstores. I'm doing an event at East West Bookstore, so they'll have copies. And it will be published on September 7th, so they can buy it the first week in September. Awesome. Listen, Connie, uh, it's wonderful reconnecting with you. Uh, best of luck on your new book. I know it's going to be such a valuable resource for Anyone who's aging and who isn't, right? That's what we all have in common. <laughs> exactly. And also for younger people who want to develop their relationship with uh, the, the seniors and the elders in their lives, I would think this would be a great resource for them too. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK today. Michael, I'm sending you love and a big virtual hug. Thank you. Well received. I appreciate it. Dr. Connie Zweig, my guest, aren't we fortunate to have this opportunity to meet here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School? I want to talk to you a little bit more. I've got a few more minutes. If you'll stay with me, we'll be back right after this. Hi, everybody. This is Nithya Raman here, council member for the 4th District in the city of Los Angeles. I'm here to remind you to wear your mask. I know it's annoying. We've been doing this for months. But Southern California is still in a very dire situation. So let's make sure we're doing everything we can to stay safe, to protect ourselves, and to protect each other from COVID, even as we're waiting for the vaccine to get out to everybody who needs it. So remember, mask up. Thanks. And because of your common sense and good judgment, you found yourself still listening to KPFK. We're at 90.7 FM for Greater Los Angeles in Santa Barbara, 98.7 FM. We're heard in northern San Diego at 93.7 on the FM dial and in the high desert Ridgecrest in China Lake at 99.5 FM. Streaming for the world, of course, at kpfk.org and podcast on all platforms. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and I'm Michael Benner. We're rounding third and heading for home here. I get about a dozen minutes left, and I was just thinking about Dr. Connie Zweig and I talking about loving the people that we love for no reason. Of course, initially, we have reasons for loving people, even if we fall in love or, uh, like the song, feel as if we're a victim of love, we stay in relationships for reasons, because the people we love are fun to be with, uh, they make us laugh, they're intelligent, uh, there's always something that we can talk about, or they're beautiful, attractive uh, good dancers, share your interest, whatever. But as that relationship grows over the years, you begin to love each other for no reason. And maybe that was always there. The way we love a baby. Actually, a, a technique I've used in my practice for years to help people with the idea of self-love is 
to suggest that they imagine, actually I do this with guided imagery or, or visualization and a level of deep relaxation, a dreamlike state where I have them imagine becoming a small baby and finding themselves in the arms of a mother. And the mother is looking down at you and loving you for absolutely no reason. As a baby, you can't do anything. You, <laughs> you can't walk, you can't talk, you can't stand on your own. You pretty much just sleep and cry a lot and, and eat and poop, and, and yet people adore you. They find you precious. And I'm suggesting that that's always the case. That's what real love is. Reasoning has nothing to do with it. It reminds me also of the idea that love is not a destination. There is no way to find love or get to love. That instead, love is the way. Love is the path that you walk. It's the road. Like the saying from the peace movement for so many decades now, there is no way to peace, that peace is the way. It's the way you behave. It's a reflection of an inner state, not an outer state. Peace is so much more than the absence of war. It's a level of consciousness. And so that's really what love is. It's a matter of consciousness. There's no reason to love, really. It just is. It's the way you be. It's the way you walk. It's the way you live your life with loving kindness and gratitude and appreciation. In other words, believing that you love someone for a reason suggests that there's reasoning involved, that it's the way you think or a decision that you've made as a result of thinking about it that causes you to recognize that you love someone or presumably some endeavor. I love baseball, but not football. I love uh, I love the great outdoors. <laughs> why? What do you mean, why? I don't need a reason. I just find that when I'm outdoors, I love it. Or when I'm at the ballpark, uh, especially on a lazy Sunday afternoon, it just feels wonderful. It's something I love, something I appreciate. Something I enjoy being immersed in for no particular reason. I love these hobbies. I love these interests. But there's no reasoning involved. And someone with a background in psychology might argue that, no, it's not our thoughts that motivate us. It's really our feelings that love is an emotion. Well, no, love is not an emotion. There really are no models in psychology of love being an emotion. Happiness is an emotion. You could say joy is an emotion. But love brings up a variety of emotions. Some of them are not pretty at all. Dr. Connie and I just talked about the way we trigger the people that we love for those that we're in loving relationships with are often triggered by us. Our most cruel speech and behavior is often reserved for the people we care about the most, the people we love the most. So love's really not an emotion either. It's more of a drive. It's, it's actually consciousness. I think love, especially when we capitalize it, 
is more than some emotional affinity. It is a word for consciousness or awareness itself. And so there's no reason to love. and We don't need to be motivated emotionally to love. Love is consciousness. Love is who you are. Love is that we are. That's a little hard to get your head around. You've got to do some mental and emotional calisthenics to really understand what that means. Hearing me say this on the radio once, a fellow in Australia made a poster for me, mailed it to me, actually. It's a beautiful, colorful poster that says, not only do we have the love we're looking for, we are the love we're looking for. Love is who we are. Love is that we are. You're not what you think of yourself so much as you're what you care about, what you love. That's who you are, you see. Now, you probably suspect that I'm moving toward a pitch. Actually, I am. (laughs) I'd like to suggest that the best reason to support this non-profit, progressive, free speech radio station, KPFK and the Pacific Commission, is not for any reason at all, but because you love it. And because it's an extension or a reflection of who you are, of what you love, what you care about, what you value as important. So maybe for the first time in the 30 years that I've been here, I'm not going to suggest any reason at all for you to make a contribution to KPFK. I'm going to suggest that you do it because you love KPFK for no reason. Because you love the information that's available here. Because you love the diversity. Because you love the courage and the dedication and the commitment of the women and men who devote their time, their energy, and their efforts to bringing you this variety of news and information and, in many cases, entertainment that illumines you, that enlightens and informs and educates you. And so while there may be many reasons why we do what we do and why we're here and why we're doing what we do, you don't need a reason to support it other than the recognition that you must support what supports you, that it's essential that you support who you are and what you are. And if you're listening to this radio station, with all the other things you could be doing now, all the other demands that are placed upon your time and energy, you're here because you value what you get. So I'm going to ask you, wherever you are in the world, whether you're right here in Los Angeles County, whether you're across the nation, or outside the United States, anywhere in the world. If you're listening to us now, we live stream for the world on the internet at kpfk.org. Make a pledge, a contribution, a donation to KPFK and do it right now. Do it before the top of the hour. Simply go to the website. That's the easiest, fastest, and actually most efficient way in terms of the amount of money we get is to do this by the internet, kpfk.org forward slash donate, right? kpfk.org slash donate. 
poke around for our subscribers circle, set it and forget it. Make a monthly pledge in subscriber circle of $10 a month. You won't even miss 10 bucks a month. And that's a nice donation of $120 a year, $15 a month, $25 a month. Actually, if you're broke, busted, disgusted, and completely out of work, you can make a donation of $25 one time per year. I mean, that's $2 a month, right? 50 cents a week, $25 one time a year. And you're a member of KPFK. You now have voting privileges. You can vote for local station board if you meet the other qualifications, you could run for the local station board and participate in the management of this radio station. You can volunteer in a variety of ways. So everybody can afford $25 once a year. You can do that now. But I'm asking for 10 bucks a month or 20 or $25 a month. That would make me so happy. The vast majority of people are not contributing anything for whatever reason. And there are reasons here. Rationalizations. I can't afford it. I'm invisible. Nobody knows I'm listening. You've got the anonymity of radio, like the internet. I can say and do anything and nobody's going to know, right? I can piggyback on the efforts of other people and not carry my fair share of the load. Who's going to know? Well, you know, right? You have a conscience. And just think of how great you're going to feel when you participate at whatever level your conscience dictates. $10, $25 a month, become a supporter, a sustainer of KPFK. Go to kpfk.org right now, kpfk.org slash donate, or you can call 818-985-KPFK. That's 985-5735 in the 818 area code. And make your pledge there. And do it because we love. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Join us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon California time, 20 hours universal, for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. So long. <laughs>